Our readings today are to mark Good Shepherd Sunday. Jesus claims the tradition of the shepherd King David. This is not a parable about good shepherds. Jesus says he is the good shepherd, that he and God, the God he calls Father, are the same. And this God will be known to us like a shepherd who deals in protection, guidance, and deep and meaningful life right now. And we have that vision completed in the revelation to another John in our other reading, all people gathered at the throne of God at the end of time, everyone in a vast, brilliant, singing throng of humanity, everyone. And in the reading from Acts, women gathering because a woman has died, clearly, unexpectedly, and at first they even think it can be avoided. She does not have to die. So Peter is called, who does a Peter, basically, which is what Peter always does, something he has not done before, but tries, and this time, thank God, it works out. And like Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus, and Jesus himself, she gets up, arises, the King James says. What a reading to have this week. So let's start with our Jesus. Unlike our unrecognizable Easter Jesus on that road to Emmaus or on that Easter beach with his disciples that we heard about last week, this Jesus is alive and well. This is before he dies, today's reading, and he's telling us who he is. But what it has to do with resurrection, why we read it this time of year, is the vastness of the vision. Jesus proclaiming his identity as one with God. And in that, not like a king or a conqueror, but a shepherd, he says. This Jesus calls us, as we heard Catherine Marshall describe so eloquently last Sunday, to be like that resurrection beach itself here in this church on Peachtree Street, a beach or a boat or a mountaintop or a portico we hear today, a porch, a place of rest and maybe even revelation or salvation, a place intended to be the most radical inclusion and welcome of all, to gather over the generations something like that great multitude gathered at the end of time. Joe Massey gave me a very troubling little book a few weeks ago, might have given it to some of you as well. It's not a tract or anything, but troubling in that it contests some of the basic laws of physics, or at least as well as I understood physics that year in high school that I had to take it, right? So just the basics of how the world works, which made me freshly aware of how much it matters how we think the world works whether we're right or not, right? We organize our lives around certain understandings of the way things are and have been and must be. It is very troubling to consider that we might be wrong about some of those things, or there might be another way. Or at least, for me, hard to take in when new information changes what I thought was decided or understood. The gospel can do a similar thing to us, um, like Joe's book, but divinely inspired, of course, it can disturb or contest our complacency. 
Or is it that the world disturbs and our faith can disturb and comfort and heal? The readings tell us today that Jesus is standing on the portico of Solomon, Solomon's porch, which like Solomon is grand and majestic, made of rare materials by fine artisans from far and wide, a part of the temple not refurbished, a temple for God. In King Herod's great renovation project to refurbish the temple, which the whole gospels are kind of spinning around that Herod is doing this, taxing the people, working them hard, rebuilding this massive temple. In that time, in that temple, he does not refurbish the portico because he can't afford it, basically. And this festival of dedication, which it says they have come to celebrate in the reading, is to dedicate this new building project. So basically, Jesus has come to a massive reception, is what's happening. And it is to celebrate a restoration of what would have been that massive site of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus is walking around in the old part, the grand old part, so grand that it was too expensive to refurbish, writes Josephus the historian. That portico built on the threshing floor that King David had purchased, a threshing floor where wheat is processed, wheat and chaff are separated, remember those stories? What is not needed for sustenance floats away on a threshing floor on that workplace of farmers, of rural people, where human labor and the wind itself is doing the work, the beginning of bread making for the community. Some say on the place where Hulda the prophetess taught in even more ancient times, Solomon built for his God a magnificent temple and prayed over his people that all who come to this place of any faith or any people would have their prayers answered, that all may know the power of their God, Solomon writes. This is the prayer we still use today for our cathedrals and great churches like this. Whoever you are and wherever you come from, you are welcome to this house of prayer for all people. Those are Solomon's words. And may it be a place of healing for you and for our world. This is our heritage not of exclusion or a distinctive righteousness that judges and excludes others, not a shepherd that seeks out some and excludes others, but one we are free to reject, one who illustrates us for us the power of God to heal, the desire of God for wholeness and care, a God who is a loving God, close by, with you, tender, alongside us in our struggles. So Jesus stands in that great historic place of entrance and proclamation, untouched heritage, to invoke the ancient Jewish idea that God is like a shepherd, like the shepherd King David, protecting, guiding, caring for us like a mother, our mother Jesus, as the mystic Julian of Norwich writes. So if you celebrate, happy Mother's Day, I hope that is a joyous proclamation for you, and I see some mothers that might have wrangled some others to be here today. Thank you. Um, We hope that this day is lovely and inviting for you. This is also a day that is complicated for many. If that is so for you, welcome. Join us in this modest multitude here that come to this place with the weights and fears and troubles of our hearts to this altar. Who you are is welcome here. A part of our very personal Christian hope is captured in John's vision of who will be gathered in that vast multitude at the end of time. 
There are the people you have loved that have died, those who have mothered you, your ancestors that you did not know, those whose stories have just broken your heart, that eclectic community of Jesus, those widows and the disciples, the Marys, all those gathered in the portico on that day. You know those are maybe the overflow crowd on the portico, the undone part, or maybe the ones that stood in the historic part that hadn't been touched and pointed out all the fine handiwork, right, of the ancients, the kind you can't get done anymore. No one does that, even Herod wouldn't pay for that today. You know, basically the Episcopalians of the time. <laughs> to us, Jesus says, I am for you as well. Another part of the life of faith, seamlessly linked to our respect for the ancients, is understanding of what we do with our faith today in the messiest parts of life and the beautiful parts, the kind that might cause you to ask Jesus, am I one of your sheep? Am I one that you could be for? In my life, if my life, if your life doesn't look like that guy, can you recognize me? Theologians call it context. The first Anglican reformers also use the word vernacular for similar purposes, the language of the people, the words of the people, context for the lived reality of the people, for us in our time, in our generations. We under the, understand the Bible also in its context, and we bring God to bear in ours. We must in all times apply the best of our intellect as well as our faith and compassion to bring the gospel to life in every generation and every place, that Christ may be alive among us, now not simply a memory, but now, not simply in a historic building, although, as we hear today, these historic sites are often the place from which we go forward boldly into the future, often by understanding more deeply our pasts. So um, I began to write this sermon on Monday with my charge in hand. Sharon Young had said, creation care is our theme. Um, I said, great. And I knew it was gonna be a, a busy week. And so I was pretty proud of myself, I have to say, on Monday afternoon. I know where, knew where the sermon was going. I was kind of set, had other things to do. Proud of myself until that evening when I saw a tweet that there had been a leak of a draft of a decision by the Supreme Court. So I turned off my phone because that couldn't possibly be true and that's what I get for looking at Twitter too late in the evening, right? I didn't know whether to believe it and I didn't want to. We have learned this week that it is a draft and we have learned a lot, most of us, about how the Supreme Court works, a little bit more, circulating drafts until a majority can agree. The ground shifting part of that draft for the 80% of Americans who, when polled, state that they believe a pregnant person should have access to abortion if they desire that, is that this draft states clearly that the Supreme Court is considering devolving that decision to the states, state by state. It will be decided whether abortion is a medical procedure a doctor can perform. You can imagine that I would not have chosen this topic for Mother's Day or really ever if I could have chosen. Justice Alito writes that it is because abortion has been illegal historically that can be debated, but in this country in this time, it seems very treacherous ground to argue that the law of the past 
in the legal tradition we inherit in this country is where we should look for models of human dignity, equality, and human rights. What they are proposing means that if you live in a state like Massachusetts or California or New York, where I've just come from, not much will change. But if you live in a state like I was raised in, Texas or Mississippi or right here in Georgia, it might mean that if you require a medically recommended procedure because of a dangerous pregnancy, your doctor cannot offer or possibly even propose that for you. That's already happening in some parts of our country. You'll remember the Catholic nation of Ireland has recently made abortion legal because an Indian immigrant woman died for lack of a procedure to terminate a doomed and in the end fatal to her pregnancy from her body. You will remember the video footage of Irish women going home from all over the world to vote to protect Irish women's lives, telling the horror stories of their mothers and grandmothers, great-grandmothers, aunts, friends, because the state, the government, supported by the church, had treated women's bodies and lives as a site of power, political power, called faith and tradition the way it had always been, as was cited as somehow legitimate in that draft document, the weight of the history of the law denying full personhood to women, leading so often and utterly unnecessarily to needless suffering and so often to death. The vast majority of Americans agree. Our health care, for those of us that can afford it in this country, should be between us and our doctors our clergy when decisions are tough, like difficult and terrifying cancer treatments, care we cannot afford or don't have the family support to manage. We clergy spend a lot of sacred time with you, listening as you wrestle with these issues that have to do with how and who you will be with your families and friends. And to be very clear, it is sacred conversation and discernment. Our politics can make these issues feel far away, about other people, clear-cut in ways they are not, except that we should always engage issues that have to do with real people's lives, and don't they all have to do with real people's lives, with the utmost compassion, like Jesus, our Good Shepherd, leads us. And our laws can and must equip, not restrain, compassion and mercy and grace for those most vulnerable to the law, those that rely upon it for justice. It is perpetuating division and bad faith among us to tell us the poorest among us and people who can be pregnant in general with their families and doctors cannot be trusted to make good decisions with respect to their own bodies, their capacity to reproduce, the potential of children. It is profoundly evil, evil, to lay out for someone else how they must manage their future. Because we all know there is nothing simple about pregnancy, parenthood, or adoption. The simple things are actually proper prenatal care and birth control and sex ed and truth-telling and access to medical care. The complexity starts when there is pregnancy and everything that has to do with it is sacred and complicated and should be managed privately and with great care and intention. 
The dignity of your body and of those for whom you have responsibility is a sacred trust of our Creator to us, and it is for us individually. And that sacred duty of stewardship is for each individual, not for a government or an abuser or an enslaver, no matter what history tells us. The idea of human rights and civil rights are about the preciousness, the dignity of the person, which is also the language of our faith. We honor that dignity in one another, and collectively we must insist upon the obligations of governments to protect and uphold that dignity. It is the same language as the language of our faith. We have somehow skewed a beautiful idea about dignity, diversity, autonomy in our legal system into only the right to own a weapon or shout hateful things or shoot someone because of a perceived threat or outlaw medical procedures that are often medically necessary in the false name of a fetus whose life has no support in this country after birth in the laws of this land. On this day, we hear the story of Tabitha, also called Dorcas, among the multitudes, a woman who dealt in beautiful cloth, it says. She has died, and the widows of the community gather, and it says with some of what they had bought from her, that beautiful cloth, it seems that among the multitudes have always been women with fine taste in clothes, so all of you are included as well. You can imagine them gathered with the signs of, excuse me, women and men with fine taste in clothes. You can imagine them gathered with the signs of her life and work collected to display. It is so timely to read in the Bible this week of a woman dying and the community of women gathering to try to save her, the disciples gathering, and then to mourn and remember her wishing something other than death for her, but having no way to accomplish that, they thought. And a disciple of this same Jesus of the portico, calling her back to life. May it be so for us, that those whose lives our Supreme Court writes off for as good as dead, you and I can stand with and march within and march off from these, this great historic place and open our arms wide, as wide as Jesus our Good Shepherd, whose voice I hear in the rage and grief of those who have been fighting for those freedoms for so long, so many of you, holding them up for us to see this week like so much beautiful cloth, the work of our lives not yet done. Tabitha, get up, arise, the King James Version says. Arise, says Peter. I don't believe he had a clue what he was doing, but all those women told him to do something, and so he did. And I bet, to his great surprise, she did. Rise up. Friends, rise up for all that we have lost. Rise up for the generations for whom we will be ancestors. Rise up with Jesus, our Good Shepherd, with the great multitudes from every nation and tribe and gender that gather around the throne, weeping in the presence of their loving Creator. And me and you today, we will rise up.